Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with 19 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider and have been helping corporations and individuals for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go on our website, moneymd.net, and we have a link in the top right-hand corner so you can... Stream us. Um, you think Bubba's taking this week off? Yeah, I think he's probably yeah. listening to us this morning. He probably yeah. is. Tiger, yeah, probably Tiger as well. You sitting know? around drinking coffee this Saturday morning, uh, no doubt. Maybe at a Waffle know? House. <laughs> That's right. He does like Waffle House. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, it was an amazing Masters, wasn't it? It you was know? very good. Beautiful weather. Yeah, it was beautiful weather and some amazing golf, um, you know, to see Bubba come grab his second green jacket yeah um you know it was a little anticlimactic i'd like to have seen a little yeah a little more of a race right in the last few holes but uh tell you the front nine was interesting because when when uh jordan speed chipped in on number four yeah that was an amazing shot oh yeah it and, was yeah he went up and then he went on to birdie number six i'm like wow he's I think he may have this tournament. He's a it, he's a player. I yeah. mean, to be only be twenty years old and to be right there in contention for the Masters on Sunday is unbelievable, you know. And if it weren't for a couple rookie mistakes, I mean, he 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 blew it on eight and then uh, landed short on nine and then landed short on twelve. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a few rookie mistakes like that. But yeah. he'd have been right there. I mean, I think next year he'll be a contender. And I no think, doubt. Yeah, he's going to have an amazing career. Yeah, he's got a lot of potential, that's for sure. He sure does. Well, that was exciting, wasn't it? But anyway, um, yeah, tune in to uh, us also on the TuneIn Radio app is another great way to listen to us on your smartphone. Um, You can listen to us around your house um, while you're jogging or, hey, you know, working around at the golf course. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Watch us also. uh, Check us on our website, moneymd.net, where you can link to us there and um, email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, I think we have an awesome show lineup today, as usual. Kind of a depressing first topic. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, I, it, but on the other hand, I mean, I think we have to prepare for yeah, what's coming. Yeah, it's reality. It's, yeah, it's it really going to happen. Is. And that is Obamacare. Um, you know, the Affordable Care Act, is, of course, is fully implemented now for the most part for individuals anyway. The employer part's not fully implemented and so the question is, what does it mean for your budget in 2015? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, so there's a bunch of studies out, and you know, now we know what the enrollment you know, numbers look like um, in uh, March. Depend, and depends on who you ask. It is who you ask, <laughs> you know. But I mean, you know, of course, the administration is is touting it as a big success, but, right? Um, so we're going to talk more about what does it mean to you down the road? What does it mean to you in 2015? What does it mean to your health insurance premiums and your health care costs and that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's right. And then we're going to follow that up with an, an article. It's out of American Funds, and it talks about, um, you know, looking back at history a little bit, and, and what do I do if the market corrects? And, and so a correction in the market is it's when the stock market is off by 10%. 
um, fairly common historically, and we right. haven't had one in a while. So it's a great article to kind of kind of think through your own situation and and uh, see how you react in those situations because it's going to happen at some point. No one knows when, but that's just how markets work. Yeah, right? and it's important to be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we're going to end with an article about um, longevity risk. And, Steve, we don't hear a lot about – we hear about market risk. Uh, we hear about inflation risk sometimes. But this is called longevity risk. And it really – I mean, the crux of it is, is um, you know, people are living longer, particularly women. And how do you protect against that um, in today's environment? How do you – Outlive in your money. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So how do you plan so you don't outlive your money? So we'll kind of give you some, some tips and some hints on that. Yeah, that's important. That's good. All right. Well, that leads us up here, though, to our financial fact of the week. <clears throat> yeah, this uh, is according to uh, College Board and um, some amazing stats here. Now, this is for private college. So the um, the public schools are a little bit less than this. But the average private college cost is about $41,000. That's for tuition, fees, room and board. Wow. And that's for 2013-2014. Uh, that's more than a uh, 2.5% time increase uh, over uh, something 20 years ago. It was about 16000 20 years ago. It's about a 5% inflation rate. So if you say the next 20 years is going to be the same inflation rate, that 41000 would go up to over $100,000, about 106000 That would be unbelievable. Per year. Yeah, it would be unattainable for most people. Oh, no doubt. It is today. I mean, if you think about 41000 yeah. per year, that's $160,000. let us say you have two or three kids. I mean, that is that is unreal. It is. I mean, fortunately, you know, private colleges discount that through scholarships. Right? Most of them do. That's right. You know, and, and I was just reading the other day. I mean, it's a pretty significant discount. It's like 25% or something for the average person that goes to a private college. However, that discount is going up mm-hmm. um, rapidly because uh, there's there's a lot of pressure on private institutions. Oh, no now. doubt. No doubt. Um, and it's coming from online mm-hmm. colleges. Mm-hmm. And just the price, that the fact that it's not affordable anymore, um, there's a lot of private colleges that are that are having trouble making ends meet. Right. And some of them are going out of business. And you have folks out there like Dave Ramsey who are saying, you know, do not go into debt going to college. Right. And the average student has $30,000 of college student loan debt. There are ways to get around that, and then one exactly. of them is not going to private school. Yeah, yeah. I you mean, know? doing online and yeah. you know, online education, and maybe just going the last two years to something you know, a public university, yeah. um, Augusta State, um, you yeah. know, Aiken Tech, USC Aiken. They're great institutions here yeah. in the CSRA. So yeah, there's Georgia, different options. Georgia Regents University. Yes, right. That's right. GRU. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the new name. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I mean, but I I, I do think it's important to note that. Um, you know, it's going to change. I really think we're on the on the the brink of a restructuring for college cost, and it's going to be for the benefit, I think, mm-hmm. of the, of consumer. the average consumer. Yeah. And uh, just due to online education becoming so widely available. So, anyway, though, it's a great financial fact of the week. And that leads up here to our first topic, and that is, what does Obamacare mean to your budget in 2015? Um, I'll give you a little hint. It's not positive. Not positive. That's right. Yeah, if you haven't already noticed that from your premiums, you know, this year. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, the the, the Fiscal Times, uh, this is an article. It's a pretty conservative organization that just came out here in the past week. And, you know, so, I mean, they, they kind of uh, – uh, beat up on Obamacare a little bit in this article, but there is a lot of truth to it, you know, and, and so, and if you haven't noticed for, you know, unless you qualify for the huge subsidy or for free, you know, Medicaid, 
Um, you know, it hasn't been a positive experience for most people yet. Mm, right. Um, and that's the problem here. But, yeah, I mean, President Obama, he wasted no time, you know, declaring victory as the deadline passed uh, back here at the end of uh, beginning of April. And, um, you know, the White House celebrated as it announced that 7.1 million consumers had signed up for health insurance through the federal and state exchanges, slightly exceeding their original goals and significantly outpacing the expectations after the, the rollout, you mm-hmm. know, the disaster of rollout here last October. Um, but the debate for repealing this law um, is far from over, unlike what President Obama said. You know, he said it's over, <laughs> it, it, it's here to stay. Um, I think that's wishful thinking. I mean, there are a couple of new studies that were just released here recently that they really prove that. Um, so, you know, before we get into those studies, though, we should recognize why we need outside organizations to validate those claims in the first place. I mean, the Department of Health and Human Services, they still have no way to really quantify the data um, about the consumers that have signed up for health insurance through the federal and state exchanges. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's sad. You know, more than six months after the initial rollout of Obamacare and four years after the uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the systems designed by the uh, Health and Human Services still can't determine basic and critical information about enrollments, such as, you know, this is a key one. You know, someone may have signed up on the website, but was did they actually get insurance by making a premium payment? Yeah, premium payments are kind of important. It's a, it's a little, little, little detail, detail, Steve. Come on, come on. <laughs> and, you know, but without a premium payment, a sign-up on, like, on the web portal does not mean coverage has been extended. So that's kind of what we're talking about getting into the details here. Furthermore, the systems were not designed to collect uh, important demographic information such as pre-existing coverage, current health status, or even, um, you know, how old they were, um, or did they have, you know, uh, success of the Obamacare structure, um, you know, really dependent on getting unhealthy or uninsured healthy Americans locked into expensive um, comprehensive insurance. So they, they were trying to get young people into the system. Yeah, and unfortunately, can't with, tell that. without young people providing the new funding for the risk pools that now have to cover the older and less healthy consumers under the community pricing restrictions that are placed on them, um, premiums are going to escalate rapidly, forcing more consumers out of the system and triggering the dreaded, dreaded death spiral, as they call it, for mm-hmm. insurers. And, you know, that's been the rhetoric from the right um, for some time, but with, with some valid reasoning. So, I mean, we need outside surveys to give us an idea of the size and the composition of the actual enrollment in, in population in Obamacare. Um, the first of the most independent studies out there um, comes from RAND Corporation, mm-hmm. uh, which studied the the changes in the health insurance market between September 2013, just before the rollout of the state exchanges, and compare that to the end of the open enrollment period um, here just last month. And so when we come back from the break, we'll dig into that, some very interesting information here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. 
I'm Steve Margaret, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about what Obamacare means to your budget in 2015 here, coming right up. You, um, you better start saving. Yeah, I mean, the news may not be good, you know, I mean, but having said that, um, you know, we just learned that um, a lot of people did sign up for Obamacare. Well, and, uh, they went as, on the website, at least, and signed the enrollment up. changed, right. I mean, they signed up. Whether or not they paid a premium is still a question. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of open questions here that haven't been answered. But the initial, the end of the rollout period looked pretty good, given the, the terrible start that they had. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people that actually went on the website. So I think that is that is a positive. They they did streamline the website. They made some changes. But, you know, I think the um, the devil's in the details, which we're about to get into here. It is, and, and the devil's in the in the proof's in the pudding, too, down mm-hmm. the road. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't really tell right now what the whole picture is. Um, and, you know, so there's a, there, one of the first studies that's out on this is called one from Rand Corporation, which looks at the um, health insurance marketplace overall, who has health insurance. And it looked at it back, you know, in September, just before the rollout, and then it just looked at it again and compared that to uh, what it looked like after the rollout was completed Mm -hmm. at the beginning of April here. And, um, you know, certainly the results say that the White House can claim credit for a net increase of like 9.3 million insureds and lower uninsured rate from 20.5% down to 15.8%. So to me, that just proves, you know, if you're giving something away for free, people eventually will take it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. so yeah, eventually more people did sign up for free health insurance or, or substantially subsidized health insurance. Um, however, the data provides a significantly different picture than that painted by the, the, the White House and those that are the advocates of the uh, Affordable Care Act. First, there's a significant amount of increase in this that comes from Medicaid enrollments. You know, that's the free insurance, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you're giving something away free, they're probably going to take it. And that certainly was the case, you know. So uh, the, so a, a major majority of this doesn't come from private insurance. Almost 6 million people enrolled in Medicaid um, and earlier studies showed that a relatively small number of those came from the expansion built into the Affordable Care Act. Um, most of those would have been qualified for Medicaid eligible prior to the reform. So a lot of it was just people that knew people that were qualifying for Medicaid, you know, because they, you know, were over 21 and, uh, you know, had kids and mm-hmm. and they were, you know, poor. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and a, another significant piece, 8.2 million more people enrolled in the in employer-provided health care as 7.1 left the other category. And another 1.6 million left the individual insurance market. So, you know, when you look at it, Steve, only 3.9 million actually enrolled in insurance plans through state or federal exchanges, not the 7.1 as claimed by, you know, the administration. So yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah, that number falls far short uh, of even the lowered expectations um, by the White House earlier this year. So, you know, about 4 million, you know, actually enrolled through insurance plans versus the 7 million that they're touting. Yeah, and moreover, I mean, those that did enroll through state exchanges didn't provide the demographic lift and the risk pool support needed to prevent the massive increases in either premiums or deductibles or both in the near future. 
um, i.e. 2015. You know, pharmacy benefit manager Express Scripts, which collects collected more data from insurers than the Health and Human Services uh, managed to do through its own exchanges. Express Scripts, they determined that the income enrollees require more medical attention than the previous risk pools, not less, which means that insurers will need to raise premiums uh, even more than they first thought they would. Ding, ding, ding. This yeah, is the start of the death spiral. I'm afraid so. You know, their new study shows that, for instance, um, the enrollees from the state and federal exchanges have a 47% higher use rate um, of specialty medic- medications in the commercial plans in general and increase the volume for higher-cost specialty drugs can have a significant impact on the cost burden for both uh, plan sponsors and patients. And the report reminds uh, reminds us. So, um, you know, despite the compromising the uh, less than 1% of all U.S. prescriptions, comprising less than 1% of all U.S. prescriptions, the report continues um, specialty medications now account for more than a quarter wow. of the country's total pharmacy spend. That's a big, man, they're expensive. It's, it's a big jump. <laughs> you know, it's a big jump. So it just tells you there's a lot of sick people and that are qualifying for yep. this. They're signing up. I mean, the medications themselves show that the cost uh, will increase relative to the existing pools as well. The rate for HIV infections uh, medications in Obamacare uh, exchanges is four times higher than that in the existing commercial plans. Medication prescriptions are 35% higher, um, and anti-seizure medications increased 27%. Ironically, the only category where the exchanges uh, consumers have lower demand than the commercial plan consumers is in contraception. <laughs> That's because they're old and sick, John. <laughs> you know, and not much going on in the bedroom if you're old and sick. <laughs> I'm afraid. Yeah, careful, let's keep uh, this show clean. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was kind of funny. It's ironic, but it's true. You know, I mean, the focus of the big political battle in the employer mandate is is you know, going to be on the cost of these medications. No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, we talked about Express Scripts. You know, they studied the changes in the pharmacy benefits, and they conclude that the Affordable Care Act has succeeded in getting coverage to consumers who need it, which was a goal. However, that comes at a high cost for those who had their existing coverage canceled and saw their premiums and deductibles skyrocket as a result of Obamacare. And, and furthermore, the number of those who gained coverage may even be smaller than the RAND study concluded. So there are people that are getting health care coverage, which is good. It's a positive piece of it. But unfortunately, the, the healthy young people it does not look like signed up, which is bad. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It says of those enrolled in the exchange plan, Express Scripts found that 43% already had coverage in 2013, um, you know, in Express Scripts from another way. So at least some of that 57% may have had coverage under another uh, prescription medication management service. So if the total number of actual enrollees is $3.9 million, the final number of previously uninsured consumers may only be as high as like 2.2 million. Mm-hmm. So, but the debate over the new law, you know, is far from over and when the next round of premium increases hits over the summer, uh the market for employer provided health insurance is going to undergo the same kind of massive disruption as the individual market did so last, you know, 6 months ago, uh, over the last 6 months. So the the debate 
over the honesty and integrity of the Obama administration may hit new levels of intensity. Mm-hmm. This is what they're showing here. I think the big shoe that, that's going to drop out the elections um, is going to be when the premiums start to roll out for employer plans and employees start to see those filter down to their share uh, coming out of their paychecks. Right. I mean, because employees have to pay a large share of that themselves and it's going to go up. I mean, it could be sticker shock as insurance companies have to factor in the new risk pools and the actual cost of coverage. I would guess the bottom line for you, for people out there listening, is that whatever you currently budget for insurance and co-pays, you may need to add in the 30 to 50 percent for that Mm. next year, you know, due to the Affordable Care Act. You spend four hundred dollars a month on uh, your portion of premiums and copays. We'd recommend you count on something more like five or six hundred dollars a month next year. Yeah, that that's painful. It is a painful. month. It is a month. Yeah. So I'm afraid. You know the the this is just a painful new reality where we are with health care. You know, it's time to tighten your belts a little. I'm afraid and and pay for all those unhealthy people out there. Dr. Marble, you're supposed to have more positive news yeah, here. I'm sorry to start off with something so negative, but yeah, I mean that's but, you got to plan for that. That's you got to exactly plan right. for that. That's the that's the point here because it's going to be expensive and it's going to hit you, you know, where it hurts, you know, right in the pocketbook. So, all right, well, that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, Steve, this question we we get periodically, and I know um, I had a client recently that had this. Uh, question, and, and I know you have them as well, but should I take a lump sum or a, a an annuity payment from my pension plan? Sometimes pension plans will say you can take all the cash today or we'll guarantee you and your yeah. spouse a certain amount. And so there's a calculation that you run through. It's a pre- present value calculation, and yep. it can kind of help put into perspective. You can do an apples-to-apples apples comparison. You can take the income stream that they're promising you and uh, do a present value calculation on it and see which one's better and um, see exactly. what there's. A, a rate that they're um, using in their annuity calculations that you can figure out what that is. And if it's 3% and you think you can do a little bit better than that in the markets, then maybe it's better to take the lump sum. Sometimes we see them 6 or 7%, and you may want to be conservative, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the discount rate. So, you know, if, if you find out that they're using a, a 3 or 4% discount rate, essentially that's what they're paying you on your money mm-hmm. to provide you that annuity payment for the rest of your life. So, you know, if, if you're willing to take a little bit of risk and, and make more than that, make 6 or 7%, then by all means, take the uh, take the lump sum, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, if you're a spendthrift, that would be a good reason to take the annuity payment um, if you don't think you can hang on to the money. But either way, you need to do the math. Yeah, obviously, it depends on, on your circumstances, different situations. So make sure you evaluate that. Talk to your financial advisor. would be more than happy to help you with that, you know, decision as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to MoneyMD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages and GNN News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are um, continuing our discussion here with a new topic, and that is what do you do if the market's correct? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, John, we have a lot of corrections in the stock market. It's a normal thing, happens, you know, every few years at least. Yep. And, um, you know, you got you to gotta have that in your mentality. What are you, how are you going to react to it? 
Yeah, that's right, Steve. And, you know, in practically every bull market of the last 40 years, the uh, the U.S. stock market has experienced a, uh, a correction during its rise. So it is fairly normal in the process. It is. You know, in a market correction is a decline of 10% or more in the stock, bond, or market index. Um, the year 2013 uh, saw 45 new record highs in the S&P 500 index. Uh, so an, un, an upcoming correction is not entirely unlikely, right? I mean, we had a big year last year. Uh, the market's been doing pretty good overall. You know, we haven't had a correction in quite a while. Um, but corrections can happen at any point during a market cycle, and they happen fairly regularly. So, you know, selling your stocks or bonds during one of those may not be your best move, to say the least. Yeah, you know, Steve, there's a, a, an interesting study that's done. Investor behavior and poor decisions um, can can certainly adversely affect returns. Uh, there's a company out there called Dalbar. They're a financial services market research firm, and they actually put a, a number um, to bad investing choices. And there's a study published in 2013 that showed that the average individual equity investor had a 20-year average uh, annual total return that was almost 4% less than the index, and that was directly related to poorly timed uh, decision-making. And um, that means that, you know, if you had invested $10,000 during those 20 years, you would have made $25,000 less than the S&P 500 index. So people's it's amazing. People's emotions take over during these fairly routine and regular events. No one can predict them. Uh, We're not trying to predict it here by any means. But it's a part of the market. When you study history, these these corrections happen, right? Yeah, I mean, Pete, rather than just sticking your money in an index fund or something and getting a, a basically a market rate of return, and people showed up 4% less, that's a huge difference, you know, and that's the difference between success in your financial picture yeah. of your investing career and failure. Oh, you no, know, no Running no out of money. I mean, that's easily that difference. Yeah, that ten thousand dollars was twenty five thousand dollars less. I mean, if you're talking about a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand, we're talking about significant money here. And yeah, you know, it's similar to putting on on a new roof on your house when the sun is shining instead of waiting until it rains. I mean, you should you know think about preparing for a correction before it occurs. You can't foresee how you'll feel, and when you're under stress, people tend to make knee jerk decisions. And the result can be long-term damage to your portfolio. So, you know, that's we feel like that's one of the values we add to our clients is talking through some of those issues, you know, and kind of talking about what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the keys to that is understanding history, right, and having the perspective of what to expect mm-hmm. going forward. And so, you know, let's take a look at history. For instance, since 1900, there have been 35 declines of 10% or more in the S&P 500, um, of those 35 down periods in the S&P 500 uh, that were down 10% or more, uh, the index fully recovered uh, its value after an average of about 10 months. Um, so, you know, 10 months to totally recover from a correction of 10% or more. There have also been 15 declines of 20% or more. Um, that's a bear market, mm-hmm. 20%, right? So uh, the market, though, recovered its value on an average of about 20 months from those 20% bear markets. And, you know, so with that perspective, I mean, if your investing time frame is years or even decades from now, you know, it's it's probably best just to hold on to your money, stay invested, don't panic. Um, of course, you know, there's no guarantee the durations and the future recoveries will, will be similar in time frame. You never know. Um 
But if you look at history, you know, that's that's what it's been. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unless you have a need for the money in the short term, it might be prudent just to, to be patient, you know, yeah. and forget about it for a while. Yeah, and, and you know, doing some rebalancing may be a, something to take a look at, making sure you have a good mix of stocks and bonds um, is another thing to look at. And, you know, manage your, you got to manage your expectations as well. Since March of, of 2009, the S&P 500 has more than doubled in value um, with an annualized return of more than 20%. That's through the end of the, the 2013 year. Uh, the S&P 500's average annual return over the past 50 years has been about 10%. So, you know, we've been in a, a recent period of outstanding results. And with long-term historical returns of the index as a precedent, keep in mind that, you know, the recent results are unsustainable. It's not going to make 20% a year. That's just not reasonable to expect that. And so, you know, you have to make sure that your expectations uh, are in line and, you know, things tend to come back to a norm. So, you know, the last five years have been good, but, you know, the the previous five years before that, not so much. So things That's balance right. out. Yeah, things do change. Yeah, and you have to you have to recognize that it, it feels very good to be in a place where your assets may have, you know, doubled in the last five years, says Eric Gray, this with American funds. But you can't expect those results to continue. I mean, the market is more likely, more like waves in the sand, as he describes it. You know, as the tide comes in, you know, they they come in and then they recede. I mean, a high water mark isn't always moving up. Um, so whether you're you do so you weather the downturns, and you know, twenty percent every year is not to be expected. Although there is no guarantee, the average annual return on investments is about ten percent. Um, over time, you know, that's the historic average of the stock market. Um, so, you know, if you just stick in there, you know, an investment could double every seven years, a little over seven years at a 10% return. So if you're invested all in stocks over time, you know, history shows you're going to do okay. Yeah, that's right. And you got to think long-term. That's the key thing here. You know, if you have some, some money, uh, short-term money that should probably be in cash for an emergency fund. But, you know, often people ask, what's long-term? And, and so you've got to kind of have that, that time frame associated with it. Um, you know, that's going to give you an idea of how much, you know, you can have in the markets for market cycles. Now, you know, long-term, we feel, and and it kind of talks about this in the article a little bit, is, you know, allowing your money to, to work for you through your retirement. And so if you're retiring at age yeah. 60, that could be 20 years. It could be 30 years. In some cases, it could be 40 years. That's really the long-term time frame that we look right, at. Right. I mean, even five or 10 years is pretty long-term sure. and gives you plenty of time to, to to recover from most corrections or bear markets. That's right. And, and you also have to um, be aware of your emotional tendencies right during this time. That's exactly right. So re- reacting emotionally to market events rather than focusing on long-term you know, objectives, that that's runs counter to achieving your long-term goals. You know, there are several behavioral tendencies among investors that can hurt returns. And uh, two of those common ones are uh, what they call recency bias and herd mentality. Yeah, we see both of those. <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, a lot. Many investors tend to think the recent past will continue into the future. And, you know, in 2009, for example, many investors were cashing out of the stock market. The market had been in a difficult period for almost two years. And that recency bias led investors to behave as though the market was going to continue to go down. 
However, you know, many of those who stayed invested saw stronger than average results over the next few years. So just because it's done this over the last year or two years doesn't mean it's going to continue. Yeah, so focusing on what happened recently is the recency bias. People mm-hmm. weight the recent history a lot more than they do long-term history. And then the other is the herd mentality. You know, as we listen to the media, family or friends, we're often worried about, you know, being the odd person out. I yeah. mean, this may lead us to to this herd mentality. You know, if others are getting out of the market, we typically – um, want to stay in a group, right? So we don't want to stand alone if it means, you know, looking foolish for even for a little while. And, you know, that can be a big mistake. So following the herd is the herd mentality. You don't want to do that either. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe you look at a correction or a sell-off as a potential buying opportunity. I mean, historically, market downturns present us with some of the best opportunities to buy stocks and bonds and, and mutual funds at discounted prices. I mean, think about it. The latest technology product were to go on sale at 10 or 20%. Consumers often think that as, you know, a great time to buy. But if the stock market goes to a similar go-on, you know, type sale at 10 or 20%, most investors tend to sell when it actually may be advantageous time to buy. Right. That's right. Yeah. And one way to one strategy for keeping your emotions out of the investing process is something called dollar cost averaging. Mm-hmm. That is simply putting a fixed amount of money in the market every single month or every single quarter. And what happens is when the markets are down, you're buying the same number of shares. You're buying more or you're buying the same number of dollars. You're buying more shares when the market's down. You buy less shares when it's up. And it tends to average out the cost of your portfolio and tends to smooth out the ride. Yeah. And the last two items here on the on the list here, Steve, or, or maybe doing some um, rebalancing. Markets have done well. Maybe take a little bit off the stocks and put them into the bonds to get it back into that target allocation. Exactly. And also consult with your financial advisor. I mean, helping develop a long-term strategy can kind of help you get through some of these difficult times. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of good information here. If you have questions on it, you can certainly reach out to us and uh, send us an email at info at moneymd.net. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a good good uh, topic, and, um, you know, the point is you just need to have a long-term perspective, and you need to, you know, ask for help. If you get scared in the market, don't react. Don't just do the knee-jerk reaction thing. So, anyway, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here, um, moving into a new article here on women, longevity, risk, and uh, retirement savings. But uh, before we get into that, though, we got the prescription of the week. Yeah, prescription. This is um, this is. Pretty pretty cool. I sometimes run across people that have done a great job saving, and Steve, they may be sitting on fifty, sixty. I've seen a hundred. I've seen one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of cash. Mm. Right. I mean, they've done yeah. a great job. And so the discussion with them is, is you know, you got to figure out what your emergency fund is of that. Maybe it's thirty thousand or forty thousand. Keep that in cash, and then you have your retirement and you know aggressively invested you know to their risk profile but then there can be a medium term fund where they take some of this cash and they can try to get it to to work and try to earn something over time so these may be for cars in the future or weddings or maybe even school a lot of different things you can lump in there but it's not um you kind of keep it conservative maybe 30 percent in equities 40 percent in equities it's going to have some volatility to it but over a time frame it should 
um, you know, make a little bit of money more so than the cash would. Right. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, you, you want to make sure that um, you, you have pockets of money for certain goals. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a car fund, for instance, would fall right in this category. Um, you know, having money that's you're going to use in three, five years, yep. um, ten year, even seven years out, and uh, put money in there monthly. You know, kind of a, a medium risk portfolio yeah. to do that. Trying to so, grow it a little bit. So you kind of have three right. buckets, short term, medium term, and then the long term, which is retirement. Yeah. So I think that's a great, great financial uh, prescription of the week. All right. And that leads up to our topic here. And that is um, women and longevity risk, you know, and retirement savings. Um, yeah. I wish I had the problem of worrying about we're living too long. <laughs> Uh, you know, us men, we usually, uh, pretty saves our wives, Mm -hmm. you know, on average. And, um, you know, so yeah, you hope you make it to the late eighties or maybe even nineties, but, uh, but you you can't outlive your money. Right. And it's nothing worse than, uh, you know, your money living shorter lifespan. Yeah. That's not a good situation at all. And, you know, if you're a woman, Steve, your odds of becoming a uh, centenarian are seemingly better than those of men. I mean, in 2010 U.S. Census, over 80% of Americans aged uh, 100 and older were women. So the vast majority, I have a um, grandmother who is, will be 99 years old this uh september wow so she's approaching it wow she's, um, that's amazing she's still doing okay she's doing okay yeah i'm gonna try to get her in here on another show maybe <laughs> that <laughs> maybe would be something day. yeah get her in here on the hundredth yeah <laughs> that's right that's centenarian right. i mean is that is that really a word or we just make that up nah, yeah. i don't know that sounds good sounds <laughs> it does good, sound but, good so the question is is will you uh, eventually live alone i mean according to the administration on aging um, about 47% of women aged 75 or older lived alone in, in 2010. And if that prospect seems troubling, there's another statistic that also uh, may scare you a little bit. While 6.7% of men aged 65 and older live in poverty in 2010, almost 11% of women in that age demographic did. So, you know, we see women living longer, um, and, you know, a lot of times their salaries are a little bit lower, and they may not save uh, as much either. So, you know, here's the the message from this is women need to pay themselves first as they go through life and planning. And so a phrase has emerged to describe all of this that we're talking about, and it's called longevity risk, right? And and so many women outlive their spouses by several years or more. A woman may need several years more, more worth of retirement income. Um, so there's, uh, you know, a need to consider income sources and investing strategies for the years after a spouse passes away. So, I mean, we see this in, in our business. We see, unfortunately, some of our clients and, and the uh, husbands pass away before their wives. And, you know, a little bit of planning goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, you know, particularly if you're if you're a young person or, you know, you're you're not retired yet. Um, you know, what can you do now? What does it mean for you here and now? And what it means is contributing as much of your budget as you allows to your retirement accounts, right? Doing some good planning, making sure you have a nest egg built up for retirement. Procrastination is your enemy. Compound interest is your friend. So mm-hmm. it means, 
you know, accepting some investment risk too. I mean, growing your investing for the long run is looking, you know, more like a necessity rather than a luxury. Yeah. You know, so you really need to do that. And you need to make sure that you have some of your money invested in the stock market. You're taking a prudent amount of risk, not counting on fixed income to get you where you need to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it fixed income in today's world is not doing real well. Inflation too is going to be a big risk here. You know, it goes along with longevity risk sure. is inflation risk. Cause over, t- over the years that you erode your purchasing power. So you have to get, stay ahead of inflation. Yeah, and so you got to think about it. You're going to need steady income, and you also need to keep growing your savings as well. In fact, in 2012, Social Security income represented about 50% of the average annual income for unmarried and widowed women age 65 and older. So Social Security was a big piece of it. Having a monthly check is certainly comforting, but that check may not be as large as you would like. Uh, The average woman 65 or older received just $12,000 in Social Security benefits in 2012. So 1000 bucks a month. I mean, that's it's not a lot. That's tough. And I've, I've done some counseling for people that are in that boat, and they really struggle. You start thinking about rent and utilities and food. It's, it's a, that's a tough haul. So, you know, you'll likely need multiple streams of income in retirement. Unfortunately, you know, forms of investment, uh, housing decisions, sometimes inherited assets can certainly uh, lead to additional income. And, uh, you know, maybe a chat with a financial professional may help you determine which options are, are sensible to pursue in your case. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned a minute ago, Steve, inflation is a big deal. Your income and your savings it has to keep up with inflation. Even mild inflation can really, you know, take a toll on the purchasing power over time. So inflation has been low recently. We don't know when it's going to spike up, if at all. But um, when it right. does, it can really hurt. Yeah, no doubt. <clears throat> so, you know, risk-averse investing, it, it may come with a price. In 2013, the investment giant Allianz uh, surveyed Americans with more than $200,000 in investable assets and unsurprisingly learned that their number one priority was retirement savings protection. And and what did surprise some analysts was their penchant for conservative investing during a banner year for stocks. I mean, 2013, S&P 500 was up, you know, 30% 30 roughly. I mean, yeah, that's right. You know, and it relates to the fact that bad memories, you know, are are, uh, hard to uh, die, you know, die hard. They're hard to forget. (laughs) You know, I mean, yeah, memories of the 2008-2009 bear market were apparently very hard to dispel. 76% of those surveyed indicate that given the choice between investing uh, in in something offered a 4% guaranteed rate of return with protection of principal and an investment offering 8% return but lacking any guaranteed protection um, against principal, uh, they would take the one with 4%, 76%. So they would take the 4% investment versus an 8% investment with less guarantees or yeah. with no guarantees. You know, it's, it's too bad, but, I mean, fear is a much bigger motivator mm-hmm. than reward or pleasure, yeah. you know. And a fear of another market crash is just very hard for people to get over. Yeah, that's right. You know, and a substandard return really shouldn't seem so attractive. I mean, if your portfolio yields 4% a year and inflation is running, you know, at 1%, um, you can probably live with that because, you know, you've got some – you're doing okay from a, a – cost of living perspective. But if you look back historically, Steve, I mean, it's not 1%. I mean, the consumer prices 
have been, you know, three to three and a half percent, um, even sometimes higher than that. And so, you know, when you look at taxes associated with that and inflation, you can actually be losing ground associated with it. So you've got to look at some ways to get growth potentially. It depends on your situation, but something you ought to consider. Yeah, I mean, if we have the 70s repeat, you know, it's, oh, it's going to be disastrous yeah. for a lot of people. I mean, cumulative inflation can really eat into things, though. I mean, as a check of a simple inflation calculator reveals, a $19 steak dinner at a nice restaurant in 2000 would cost you about twenty four fifty today, mm-hmm. given just the ongoing tame inflation that we've had over the last 14 years, um, that's, that's about a 36% increase cumulatively over over time. So, And that's at a pretty low inflation rate. I mean, it could be a lot worse than that. Sure, no doubt. So, you know, I think the bottom line from this article and kind of our message is, is in, in some cases you got to look at your own specific case, but growth investing uh, is a necessary response to longevity risk. After all, I mean, you can't risk outliving your retirement savings and keeping part of your portfolio in the stock market offers you uh, the potential to keep growing your retirement money, thereby offering you a chance to have a, a larger retirement from fund, which you can withdraw some some income from. So, again, it's uh, all this we're talking about is you know dependent upon your specific information and your situation. Make sure you consult with a financial advisor or read the prospectus before you do any kind of investing. But it's just a way that you can combat some of the inflation and longevity risks that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you just need to be prudently invested so that your plan for the long term is you can live off of 4 or 5% of your portfolio per year, right, mm-hmm. and, and make more than that. Um, so you've got to have a long-term plan for that. We're, we're here to help. If you, if you need some help with that, um, you know, give us a call. All right, well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Stay tuned for next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. Uh, to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us out on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you at info at moneymd.net, or give us a call, John and Steve at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.